Hi, friends. I'm Olivia. I'm Rod. And you're listening to Just One More Thing from Sunrise Church. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Just One More Thing from Sunrise Church. In today's episode, we are covering the April 16th sermon titled Stones. I remember that you had said that you had a different either video clip or title lined up because you were on one track and then a couple nights before you gave the sermon, something else hit you. Can you explain a little bit about that? I originally was going to title this sermon, Too Big to Fail. That's a common phrase, especially now with uh, banks failing. And uh, so it would kind of ring true. And I was bringing uh, what was contemporary out in, in our world back into Scripture. And I was looking at it from the perspective of the church and how Christ is building his universal church. But I had this moment that turned the passage on its head, and it's a, a moment that we've been talking about as far as who were the original recipients of this letter. Were they uh, Jewish believers? Were they Gentile believers? Or was it a mixture? And I, I'm studying this passage about the stone as it relates to the temple, and it suddenly dawns on me that when Peter writes this letter, the temple, literally the temple in Jerusalem, is still standing. When I had that moment, it's like huge. No one had mentioned it in any of the journal articles or commentaries that I read. No one... Um, looked at the fact that that temple is still standing. One, at, at this time, Peter probably died uh, probably in about 68 A.D. Some people say between 64 and 68 A.D. This letter, I believe, was written about 62 A.D. The temple wasn't destroyed until 70 A.D. What difference would it make if we're talking about the Jerusalem temple in relationship to Gentiles. It wouldn't have any bearing at all. But if you're a Jew, you're kind of wondering, where do I go back to? You know, because God established that temple. And so uh, the passage that Peter quotes from uh, Psalm, Psalm 118, is directly related to the temple. So that ended up turning everything on its head when I said, okay, what would be the temptation there for them? The temptation would be for them to gain security by adding on to the worship at the temple. These these people had already, for the most part, had already gone to worship at the temple in Acts chapter 2. So why would they not go back there? And Peter's giving them a bigger perspective of who they are. And every time that phrase is used in the New Testament, whether Jesus uses it in um, Matthew 21 or Peter uses it in Acts, I believe it was Acts chapter 4. It's always a distinction between the leaders, the Jewish leaders, and the remnant, the believing people. There's that distinction there. What phrase is that? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. So uh, that concept of the builders rejecting a stone, and yet it's the very stone that the builders needed to complete the temple. So this seems to be a phrase that's used between a believing remnant 
and that remnant would represent all that God wanted the nation to be, and the religious leaders who were trying to create a uh, a kingdom in their own image. Um, so that's why the I called it stones. The, the word stones comes up over and over and over again in this in this passage. Uh, so that's that's how that whole thing turned. And by the way, the video clip, uh, I had several people comment to me afterwards. They wondered, where in the world is he going with the video clip? And, and all I was trying to do with the Andy Griffith video clip when the inspector comes into town is show that the inspector was all about the form, the manuals that the Mayberry jail needed to look and function the way all the other jails looked and functioned. And yet Andy saw the bigger picture. The bigger picture there is he has one job and that's to keep peace and security in Mayberry. And that's what he did. And so um, we can't allow the form to override the function. And so what Peter's doing here in this passage, I think, is encouraging them to seek Jesus. They've already tasted, as it were, the goodness of the Lord. Why not continue going on in relationship with the Lord? And so I think that's what he's doing. And I think he's literally talking to Jewish Christians, and he's talking to them and pointing to a a literal temple that's there, but saying, hey, you are part of a spiritual temple that he's building. So I think that would ring true with them. And that that concept turned everything on its head, for me at least, in, in having the passage uh, unfold. One of the things I want to say is one of, one of the jobs that we are to do as expositors and when we study a passage of Scripture is we are to get into the shoes of the recipients, trying to get into the shoes of the writer and the recipients. And so what I try to do is I try to say, okay, if I'm living back then, how would I understand this? How would I read this in its original context? And what would I be going through? And the temple would be a real temptation to make that trek down to Jerusalem. And so that's how that whole thing kind of popped in my head. So when you're talking about this phrase, the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone, how is this normally taken? And then can you explain just one more time how you're taking it in contrast to, I guess, the normal view? Well, normally it's taken that it's uh, Gentiles are included and that it is a difference or a distinction or a dividing line between believers and unbelievers, between whether Jews that are unbelievers and Gentiles that are believers. That's the way it's normally taken because they see this as the church. If it is uh, talking about the temple, if he's contrasting it with the literal temple that's still standing, and when you look at the other usages of this phrase in the context of those usages, the distinction is not between believers and unbelievers. It's between the Jewish believers that are the remnant and the Jewish leaders who are put in a place to lead and guide and who are not doing it. So, for instance, in Matthew 21, Jesus just tells the parable of a tenant that uh, a man went away and he left his garden. He rented his garden uh, to some to some tenants, and they ended up abusing it, doing everything uh, that they could 
to to tear it down essentially and he sent different people to try to get them to to straighten it up and uh they they beat up some they kill some and then finally the owner sends his son and they kill his son and it's very interesting in that uh, verse 45, the chief priest and the Pharisees heard Jesus's parable, and they knew he was talking about them. And wedged between there, between the parable, and when they know that he's talking about them, he quotes Psalm 118, and he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So that's very upfront about who the distinction is is between these Jewish religious leaders and the remnant who embraces this rejected stone. So I don't think it has Gentiles in it at all. Again, I'm 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 open-minded enough to know that I could be wrong, but to me this passage really solidified the question of the audience. And the other reason people Christians guard this passage is because it seems to support the concept of the priesthood of the believer. The thing is, I don't think you need this passage to support that doctrine. I think it's it's pretty clear elsewhere. Peter writes uh, in reference to the different Old Testament verses about the stone. He quotes a passage, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And then in his own writing, he says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is the ESV. Can you explain a little bit and touch on what it means that they were destined to do? What I think he's saying here is that this verse teaches that all those who willfully disobey the word are destined to stumble. There are consequences for disobedience, and they are destined to stumble for that disobedience. So I think that's that's what he's saying there. Um, really nothing more or, or, or nothing less. I think some people uh, try to read in here kind of a double predestination, like there are people that are predestined to hell, prede- there are people that are predestined to heaven. And uh, I don't think that's what this passage teaches. I remember that uh, Dr. Norman Geisler, uh, you might be familiar with him, he wrote Christian Apologetics. He was One of my professors uh, during my time at Dallas Seminary, I'll never forget he said this, and and it just made so much sense to me. When anybody ends up in heaven, they cannot pat themselves on the back and take credit for that. And anybody that ends up in hell, they can't raise their fist at God and blame him for that. So um, I think there are natural consequences uh, you are destined to stumble if you disobey the message. And and I think the original language bears that out. What is it referring back to, the destined? Is it destined to stumble or destined to disobey? And and I think it's pretty clear it's destined to stumble. And as far as the audience goes, I mean, the next verse ties back to Exodus, talking about you are a chosen, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I mean, that goes directly back to Exodus. So... Again, that wouldn't really mean much for the Gentiles, you know. So there's a lot of things that are popping up even in these first few chapter, first couple of chapters that seem to hint heavily to a Jewish audience. Yeah, but if you hijack that and take that 
uh, which I think a lot of the commentators do, they hijack that and say, oh, this is meant for the church now. Think of the meaning, though, to Jews, Jews that feel alienated because they have believed in Jesus for eternal life as their Messiah. They, they, they would feel like they're in no man's land. And what Peter is trying to say here and communicate to them, to encourage them, is that their security, their, uh, their lives are fulfillment of from the very get-go of God calling them out to be a nation. Uh, because, because now that barrier between Jew and Gentile has been broken down. Now they can witness to the world. Now they can be fully Jewish uh, from, that, from that perspective. That's the argument that Peter's making. Um, and so I, I don't think we lose anything by getting in the shoes of the readers and overlooking and, and seeing the temptation of going to the temple, the temptation of doing all the religious things, because we do that too. Someone who would not agree with my theology, which is faith in Christ alone, believing in him for eternal life, the gift that he offers, is all that's needed, would have a hard time with that. And I know you're thinking, you know, most people believe that. Generally speaking, people come back around and they try to put some kind of work into it. And if a person is doubting and a person doesn't have assurance, they come back around and they try to say, well, well, what's your life like? What's your temple attendance like? And I think what Peter is doing here is he's trying to get them to embrace Jesus totally, unconditionally in their walk not because they haven't done it for salvation, but to rely on him in their walk every single day. They've tasted of the Lord in verse 3. Now go on and embrace him as you come to him and, and continually coming to the Lord and deepen that relationship. It's not about one's relationship to the temple. It's not about one's relationship to the church or to the, the works. It's about one's relationship to Jesus. There's plenty of passages in the Old and New Testament that talk about how if you disobey, you stumble. If you obey, the path is made straight. And, you know, one of those that comes to mind is Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You know, it helps us see clearly. It, it guides us. There is the, the negative side and the positive side, and there are consequences to each. And I think the uh, rabbinic literature on Psalm 118 really opens up where they're building the temple and they have the capstone right there, but they forget about it. They ignore it. <laughs> and they're literally tripping over it. And when they come to the end of the building of the temple, they're missing this one stone. And this stone they've literally tripped over is discovered and put on there to make the temple complete. So it is a great picture of something being right there and being ignored. And uh, Peter doesn't want that to happen to his readers. He doesn't want that to happen. So, Okay, one last question that I have, because you mentioned that there is a disagreement about this. You were using the phrase capstone, but a lot of translations, I think, say cornerstone. Can you explain why you're going with capstone in your reading? There was a German biblical scholar named Joachim Hermaeus, and uh, he lived between 1900 and 1979. And he argued pretty forcefully that capstone is what was intended there. And the idea that this is the last piece, this is the top piece, it would be a, a weird piece to fit in. Um, 
you know, when we see cornerstone, that's one of the, that's something to bring two walls together. And it, it is also has a, an odd shape. But quite frankly, that would be foundational. It would be something early on in the building process. So uh, there is a lot of confusion about that. Um, most people don't agree with Hermaeus on, on his uh, interpretation. They used to, but that they don't now. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I can't say uh, there's probably good things weighing both sides, but uh, I think I think Christ fits both of those things. He's foundational in bringing two things together, um, you know, bringing, bringing man and God together. He is the God-man. You could build a case for that. But as the capstone, he is was the missing piece of the temple uh, in bringing him into that— um, so, you know, I ended up not really dealing with that question as much uh, in this sermon because I really don't think it matters to the, to the interpretation. And I know that's as picky as I am about some things, but I just couldn't come to a, you know, drive the nail down and this is it with that question. But I appreciate the question. So you mentioned that, you know, Christ can be both of them. When Paul mentions it in Ephesians 2... Is he talking about specifically the cornerstone? He's talking about the church there. I mean, right, you know, that's but, the context. you know, Christ himself being the cornerstone. There's yeah. not confusion about capstone no, versus cornerstone that's there. Right. He is the cornerstone that's right. there. Gotcha. And I don't think anybody uh, questions that. Christ quotes Psalm 118 in Matthew chapter 21. So Psalm 118 recounts a story that we really don't have. It re- references that. Now, the way a lot of rabbis handle that is saying that Psalm 118 is talking about David, King David, because he was rejected when Samuel comes and he says, this is, you know, this oldest brother, surely he's God's anointed, and the, the whole concept of God looking on the heart, not on the outside, but on the heart. And that's the way a lot of people would apply that psalm. What Jesus does in Matthew 21, uh, he relates it to the remnant versus the chief priest and the Pharisees. And, and Peter will do the same thing in action in Acts. I believe it's Acts chapter 4. And then I think he's reaching back to do that here to show those people because it would be so it would be so easy for those people to be intimidated by all the religiosity that is out there, what they're leaving in religious practice for Jesus. The temptation would be to run back to that. Paul does this in Galatians chapter, well, in the book of Galatians. People are running to wanting to run back to the law for their security, for their assurance. And, and Paul says, no, you cannot do that. If you are relying on those things, then the death of Christ has no effect for you. You know, so I think that's the same thing that Peter's trying to encourage his readers with in First Peter chapter two. Yeah, it's definitely an encouraging thing, both for them as the initial readers, but then also for us today. So thank you for explaining all of that and great sermon. I know I give you a hard time sometimes when there's just a little bit, just a little bit, but this was a great one. So I really appreciate it. And thank you for explaining all that and breaking that down for us. And thank you all for listening to just one more thing from Sunrise Church.